welcome to another episode of Chris Reed's book. Welcome to episode, well, this would be chapter eight. I might be putting in a uh, prequel episode to this in the interest of trying to uh, get more of a hook for the book as I try and find an agent for it. I'm going to start focusing on that again. But for now, this would be chapter eight, and it is also episode eight, even though there might be an episode zero, which... If you're in computer science, those numbers can get a little squiffy. But anyway, welcome back. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for finding me on the social medias and connecting with me there. Uh, In case you have not yet done so, all of my social media information, my Patreon page, those are all connected through my website, www.narclaninc.com. That's www.narclaninc.com. Please head over there. You can find a link to my Facebook account, to my Twitter account, my YouTube account, to Patreon. If that's not up there, it will be soon. And basically, Patreon, it's kind of like an ongoing Kickstarter campaign. It's where you can pledge money uh, in support of this podcast, in support of me, for every episode that I put out. I haven't put out any uh, episodes that people have to pay for yet. At some point, I probably will, but we'll see if I can get any backers first. In the meantime, why don't we look into this episode? The title is How the Nanites Work. We are back with Eric uh, and uh, Eric Pullman and James Hall at Eric's house, another interview session. And I'm going to try adding some voice effects to this particular episode, and you'll see why as we go. And hopefully those turn out well. We'll find out. So, I hope you enjoy How the Nanites Work. We weren't superhumans, just ones with advantages. The nanites fused into our very cells, boosted at most one or two attributes per person to extraordinary levels. Most of the time, that meant a keener intellect, better overall perception, more physical strength, in addition, of course, to better soldiering, but that much was due to the nanitic programming. Basically, the nanites took a person's personal strength, or strengths, and built upon it, Eric said in response to my question. Then, what about your legendary abilities to survive even the most ghastly attacks? Still extant in history texts were stories about how TDF elite troops would simply charge a machine gun nest, uh, walk into and through fire, even cradle a grenade as it exploded, all without taking any physical damage. Once again, it was the nanites. As we based their behavior on biological organisms, ranging from skin cells to beehives, to ant colonies, they reacted as such. When we would be in battle, under attack, and get shot, the nanites would protect the host by taking the damage, even to the point of destroying themselves. Whenever one nanite was destroyed, another would replicate a replacement using stored energy and materials from the host, Eric replied with a shrug. 
Did the nanites ever fail to protect a host? I asked. In prolonged battle, yes. A host can only hold so much energy in reserve, Eric said. As he leaned forward a bit, seeming to try and form a mental object with his hands, he continued, Think of a reactor. Once the reagents are exhausted, power production shuts down. The nanites, when they sense a low power reserve, stop replicating as fast or, in the most severe cases, altogether. When all the available energy is gone, the nanites simply go into hibernation, essentially retreating into the host and leaving him or her to fend on their own. It's a mechanism that was meant to save the host in the long term by giving the body a chance to regenerate its reserves while the host was in hiding. During the insurrection, though, the battles were so fierce that people simply fought on past that limit. So many good people died simply because they wouldn't leave their posts. Then how did you get your reserves back? Did you jack to a power source or something? I asked. It seemed an absurd idea, though with how little information we had on TDF elites, it was a plausible answer. Normally, eating was sufficient, Eric replied. Our bodies were able to convert food into storable energy at nearly 100% efficiency. Bananites simply helped our digestive system store food energy more efficiently. So what about those times of prolonged conflict, such as during their insurrection? There are first-hand accounts of how your, uh, you, people would stay on the front lines for days at a time. Was food still enough even then? Once we realized that the fighting would be nearly continuous, our best bioengineers, yours truly included, came up with new coating for our nanites, which allowed us to gain energy from the sun, just like plants do. How so, I asked staring at his plants over his shoulder. We always wear, wore, a thin layer of nanites to passively protect us, Eric replied. After we figured out how and implemented the code patch, the nanites were able to function, essentially, as solar cells. Such solar capabilities, along with piezo-generators which ran through most of our bodies, helped boost our energy reserves. In battle, however... That was more of a stopgap measure as more energy was being consumed than produced. My mind suddenly clicked, latching on to a passing thought. So that's how your people survived on Mars? Sure. The insurrection to our exile. That's a logical jump, Eric quipped. The thought just occurred to me that if your nanites were always active in protecting you and that they were always able to, uh, for lack of a better word, recharge you, that's how you were able to survive on Mars despite its hostile environment. Your nanites would have still been able to gather the power they needed to protect you from the original Martian atmosphere, and I think it would be reasonable to assume doing so took less energy to do than was gathered. At least, I would think so if the original purpose of such energy gathering and storage systems were to help during battle, I said nearly breathlessly. Well, you're not so dumb after all, Eric said with a smile. Very true. Our nanites did offer us enough protection against the environment on Mars. But they can only work with what's available, he finished. So, they function as environmental suits, but not spacesuits, I asked. 
Spot on, kid. The nanites even protect against extreme pressure, as at least there's something to work with. So long as there is some sort of substance, the nanites can generally sustain the life of their host. I still wouldn't want to try jumping into a star, though. Their interlocking nanitic matrices can be reasonably tough, but a star has a lot of heat and pressure. So that's how you survived. But what about the terraforming, I asked? Even now, we don't possess the technology to do what you people apparently did in the time you did it. You see, most theories on the Martian terraformation indicated it should have taken decades to accomplish what, according to soil records, had taken under one decade. That lack of knowledge is largely due to the government's shunning of nanitic technology, Eric said. Too many viewed the arbitrary creation and destruction of these sentient organisms, despite them being hived and so really more reactionary than sentient, as unwholesome. Y you see, people misunderstand that the nanites were a hive being. They weren't sentient, they just acted that way. And they were just misunderstood, Eric said. So, why why didn't more people use them, I asked. People saw it as evil to destroy such sentient beings, Eric said with disdain in his voice. Well, clearly you disagree, I said. Is it that obvious? I was trying to hide it so well, too, Eric said. As the co-lead of the first project to create and harness nanites, of course I disagree. They can't feel. They have no sense of self. They are programmed nanoscopic insects. They protect their host as warrior bees do their queen with selfless disregard. It was all simply an excuse to block the research, he finished. You feel that we as a society would be more advanced if we used nanitic technology, I asked. With nanites, we could specifically target disease cells, cancer cells, even use them to form a lattice and encourage repair of major wounds or organs. Amputation, organ destruction due to chronic damage could both be things of the past. We could regrow any organ from the inside out, Eric said. So then, how are the nanites used in the terraforming process, I asked, hoping to deflect some of his angst with the question. Believing you wouldn't be interested in or capable of understanding the details, Eric replied. Let me just say that we first aerosolized the nanites to convert the atmosphere to a breathable mix of oxygen, carbon dioxide, etc. Are they still floating around? I was suddenly worried, having lived on Mars my whole life, other than trips off planet, of course. No, of course they aren't. Once they produced enough oxygen to sustain animal life, they self-terminated and then degraded over course of time. They rusted away, Eric added, apparently thinking I wouldn't understand what he meant by degraded. Without a host, how are they powered? Nanite photosynthesis, Eric said, just as in a host body. But then how did they store energy? I mean, it's not always sunny out, I commented. Eric, exasperation edging his voice, said, Well, of course they couldn't store energy outside a living being. They would simply go dormant at night, picking up their work when it was again light out. 
So what about all the flora here? I asked. Our scientists contend that it couldn't have grown so abundant in such a short amount of time. Again, thinking about how quickly Mars had been terraformed and covered in plant life. Well, they didn't. At least not by themselves, Eric answered. We infused every square inch of Martian soil with nanites set to encourage cell growth. Trees grew at a, a rate surpassing 1,000 times normal. In days, forests that rival the largest old-growth ones on Earth sprang up, all protected from the adverse soil conditions by the nanites. And those nanites, I said, were homegrown here on Mars, Eric finished, from the minerals readily available in the soil. It's red for a reason. Likewise, once they were done with their work, they went dormant and decayed. We left no trace of their presence here. So that's why you're so confident about nanites, I said. You've seen the results. But what of such an accelerated growth process? Isn't that what forms cancers in living organisms? I pushed. The answer was already clear. Nanites. However, being a journalist and not a biologist, I wanted to hear Eric's explanation. Yes, but again, the nanites provide the solution, he said. They're able to monitor their surroundings and trim cells that begin to exhibit abnormal growth patterns. In this way, any number of diseases, environmental or genetic, can be prevented while cells are still forming, still undergoing mitosis. Their very DNA can be pre-analyzed for defects. It's a proactive approach to disease that most research doctors tend to shun, even today, as it isn't nearly as profitable, Eric replied. Even so, why not bring such knowledge and data to the larger scientific community, I asked. Why not make your case and try to get nanites accepted as legitimate? After all, I thought, if nanites held such promise, why not try to reintroduce them in a more enlightened age such as ours? We did, some time ago, Eric answered. It was shunned as unstable technology, pure science fiction with no basis in fact. We tried to fight that fight, arguing it would only benefit humanity over time. Those in power, both in the scientific establishment and the government, were too scared of its possible implications toward human augmentation to allow it even the most remote foothold in the workplace of real science. There's still the memory that something of the sort was core to what happened in my time, to what befell Earth those centuries ago. Instead, they concocted stories of how cures already existed, such as we described. Courses of treatment for various diseases and conditions had been made true, but not cures. They wouldn't listen, though, Eric said with a shrug. So, we did try, and failed, to resurrect the tech. Were you at least able to improve it in the attempt, I asked? How so? Eric seemed truly perplexed at the question, one that had seemed a logical next step in technological advance to me. Well, with technology where it is today, I imagine that you could have made the nanites um, smaller, better, uh, have improved their design and function somehow. I could almost see thoughts beginning to pile upon each other in Eric's mind. It was as if such an idea had truly never occurred to him before. It is odd. We would never have tried in that time to improve the tech, Eric commented, almost to himself. With so many of us working together on the research, you would think one of us would have brought the idea up in council. 
Looking back at that present, it almost it almost feels as though a wall existed around such an idea at the time. Yeah, yeah so a wall that we could not surmount, but also which we couldn't see as if something were intentionally keeping the idea of a, from us. After another moment of contemplation, he waved off the whole train of thought. But no, no, no. There had to have been some reason we didn't pursue such advancement of the tech. We, we would have thought of it if it were possible. How about now, I asked. Hmm? Uh, would it be possible now to improve the tech, I asked again. Well, Eric again seemed as though the thought of improving the nanites had never occurred to him. Even his just-spoken thoughts seemed to have left his conscious memory already. I should think so. I mean, with the right equipment and the best and most capable minds, perhaps, but none of those are real anymore, he said as he rubbed his right temple, and I certainly don't have access... Uh, I, I, I don't have access to the, f to the facilities to conduct such advanced research anymore. I would come to find out later that this was not true. I mean, with the right equipment, one could massively shrink the hardware while, Im while improving its overall efficiency. Yeah, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure right now how you'd go about that, which, which I find quite odd. Suddenly, Eric began stroking his goatee while staring at the floor. Rarely did I see Eric concentrating and contemplating as hard as he was then. Normally, things simply came to him, as easy as rainfalls. Suddenly, after a slight twinge in my head, I found myself inexplicably curious about the whole affair. So I pressed, how precisely could they be improved? Well, I mean, certainly they would no longer be nanites, I mean... With lasers alone, such as we have now, we'd be talking at least pico-sized, and at that level of tiny, the nanites would be able to interact with matter in a wholly different way. Instead of having to take on traits of things to act as catalysts within a host, they could simply construct the necessary catalysts from the subatomic up. They would machine substances in the body. Even the level of interplay between swarm and host would change. I mean... Think of a construction site. So many different sizes of equipment could work in perfect harmony to achieve a level of sophistication and efficiencies we never thought of. Instead of nano-sized machines reaching across dimensions to effect change, they could network with and command their own army of peakites to help. But e even so, what sort of interdimensional play could be achieved by such systems... Personal power plants could be rendered if if peakites could use the same dimension jumping as their big brothers to subtly move about subatomics, nuclear fission and fusion, a constant and safe, uh, could be produced within cells themselves. Imagine every cell of the body as a power plant for a nanitic. Eric began gesturing with his hands, initially now gesticulating with both arms while still staring at the same spot on the floor. He rose and began pacing as he continued. Such available power opens whole new avenues of possibility. I mean, such as an uh, inability to create power at such levels internally would practically free an anetic from 
from physical limitations altogether. And with with a nano pico system operating at maximum efficiency and power, then the nanitic could produce internally from simple rearrangement of extant materials all nutrients it would need. So I said, you're saying such a person would never have to eat. I'm saying, Eric said, that she would never have to do much of anything ever again. His eyes widened almost beyond belief. He grasped the back of his chair with one hand, continuing to gesture with the other, gazing off into different directions and possibilities as he did so. As much as our nanites could take salt water and turn it into breathable atmosphere, peakites would remove the need to breathe. They could simply take waste products and realign the subatomic structures, causing a chain reaction of all such molecules to realign and become useful again. They could turn CO2 into pure oxygen, make acid into raw amino acids. The possibilities are astounding. Eric stopped, staring off into a corner of his ceiling while holding a statuesque pose, one hand raised, palm up, the other continuing to grip his chair. As I waited his continued discourse, I could swear that beneath us, in what I assumed to be his basement, I heard movement. After some time, what seemed like minutes, I cleared my throat, saying simply, <clears throat> uh, Eric? His eyes came back to me, but they were devoid of color, a solid gray. You came a chorus voice of voices. You have started something here that has changed time. It was the first time I had heard this chorus of voices from Eric, though it would not be the last. It was a melodic voice, soft and strong at once, covering the entire gamut of human vocal range in distinct tones while seamlessly melding into one spoken voice. For many reasons we kept such a thought hidden. Among them, we could not see what such an innovation would do, but uncertain as the future is right now anyway. The voices trailed off as Eric's eyes seemed to swirl through colors I could just barely make out. Blues whirlpooled to greens that mixed through to dark browns and light hazels before returning to the light gray they began with. My mind raced, panic gripped it at what was going on before me, Knowing some magic tricks such as a hobby, I knew that what I saw in front of me was not a trick. What was happening with and to Eric was real, and it scared me, as the unknown scares any human. The path we had seen, that we had tried to trend down, is now bent. Where does it go? The, chor the chorus asked me as a child asks a parent. Eric's gray eyes somehow seeming to focus on me despite their lack of pupils. All at once he shook his head, closing his eyes. When he again looked at me, his eyes were their usual green. In them was confusion and concern. What happened? Eric asked me in his own voice. I've, I feel like I'm waking from a dream. I was actually hoping you might be able to explain that to me a bit, Eric. I'm a little more than freaked out right now. I remember. Impotence. Possibility. Roads opening through a dense wood. He truly seemed as though he were trying to remember a dream he had just had. Confusion played across his face. Nanites. And possibilities. Eric. Really, what just happened here? I mean, I was here, but you weren't. 
Eric seemed as though he gained some small understanding from my offhanded comment. Say that again. With clarity, he said, leaning forward slightly. I was here, I repeated. But you weren't. Your body was, but it wasn't you talking, and knowing illusions, those were not your eyes. Realization seemed to dawn on Eric. This is one reason I asked you here, he said as he came around and sat down in his chair. Things are changing within me, things I cannot control. Even if such improvement to the nanitic technology could be made as we'd been discussing, it would be too late for me. Are you saying that you're dying, I asked? Not quite. The entirety of what is happening to me is a story for another time. Eric, I wish to understand, I said. I was still getting over the shock of what I had seen, but suddenly found myself much more willing to believe any story Eric might present me. The man sitting in front of me, a man who still manually tended to and kept houseplants, who only a few days prior had been no more than a stranger in a local pub, had shocked me to my core, and I wanted to know why and how. Few things in my professional career surprised me anymore. I had interviewed people claiming to be demon-possessed, or Satan himself. They were generally more fun than the messiahs to interview, by the way. End-timers, all of whom have been wrong, even various pets since the invention of the various forms of animal speech translation. While traveling in space, I had seen such beauty and experienced such unexplained phenomena as to make a believer of an atheist and vice versa. During the water strikes in the old Middle East, I saw in the news how religious fanatics set themselves ablaze to make a point, and have even seen firefighters lift impossibly heavy objects just high enough to save people trapped beneath. But never had I been as shocked. That chorus of voices had seemed to not just pass into my ears, but to touch my very soul. My heart had grown cold from its touch, and those gray eyes held me in a trance, willing me to pay rapt attention while simultaneously making me want to run in terror. Even so, I had to understand what had just happened, perhaps if for no other reason than that I saw an interview through to an end, whatever that end may be. James, Eric said, now staring off through the front window, his voice carrying an uncomfortably familiar air. It's not yet time for you to understand, but you will. Needless to say, such a sentiment did nothing to settle either my nerves or questions. Then when, I pressed, when the time is right, which is not now, Eric said with finality. Okay, fine then, I said. To what subject can we return? Not the Peakites, Eric said. Your current knowledge would not lend itself to a rich understanding of such technology. How about the local flora here, then? How there came to be such a rich variety of species, even unique ones. It wasn't truly something I was interested in, but thought it might lead back to a discussion about the Peakites. Yes, we could talk about that. First, let me ask you something, Eric said. Have you ever read the old book Dune by Frank Herbert? No, I'm not familiar with it, I replied. It was, rather is, a book series that was written during the 6th and 7th decades of the 20th century, for my readers' own use and reference. Too bad, Eric said. Throughout that book, the author describes how a people on a fictional desert planet 
go about terraforming it over the course of some 350 years. On this real desert planet, we followed largely the same ecological reshaping plan, though accelerated greatly, thanks to the nanites, of course. Of course, I agreed, hoping that eventually I may have been able to refocus the conversation. As I had said, we first used nanites to create an atmosphere tolerable to plant life, then slowly, well, relatively slowly, we began introducing increasingly more complex varieties of plants. The tough part was keeping the system in balance as we went. After all, while we could manipulate certain variables on a global scale, others we had to leave to Gaia. Honestly think the hardest part was importing the necessary fauna to complement the growing flora. How's that, I asked? Think about it. We created a globally oxygenated atmosphere. What do plants feed on in the air? Eric asked. CO2, I said, recalling my secondary school biology classes. And how much of that do you think several thousand humans were producing on a planet even this size? Eric asked. Not nearly enough, apparently, I replied after a moment's thought. Correct. As we increased the plant growth, we had to increase the number and complexity of animal life here to keep the system in balance. It's easy at first. You bring in small animals that chomp down the growth, but eventually that population can grow out of control. So you bring in specific predators. Once that is in balance, you bring in more flora and more animals to keep the balance. Those animals, though, too often aren't prey for the previous predators, so new predators must be brought in. It's a constant push and pull when you're trying to create a planetary ecosystem from scratch. And the shit part is that you eventually run out of animals to import. Other than one. You know the animal of which I speak, Eric said in his professor voice. My guess would be humans, I said after a slight grunt. Exactly. At a certain point, we had to start importing humans. What do you mean by importing, I said? You couldn't exactly bring humans here in cattle transports. How do you think construction workers travel? Eric asked. First class? A chain of events unfolded before me, a knowing grin appearing on Eric's face. The government didn't start the settlement of Mars, did it? I asked. Nope. You and your kind devised a scheme to attract people here, forcing more and more population to follow to support them, I said. Right. All the while, quickly growing vegetation as the ability of human life to support it increased. Even righter, Eric said. Which is why there are still stories of people swearing that new forests and prairies would magically crop up overnight here on Mars. Because they actually did, I added. Spot on. Eric said. And the whole while, you and your people use the influx of new population to allow you, once exiles, to silently reintegrate into society, I said, finishing my train of thought. A happy broad byproduct of making what had been a lifeless rock become a usable home, Eric said, leaving his elbows on the chair's arms while raising his hands upward with a shrug. And no one was suspicious, I asked. You know the reports. Officially, the exiles on Mars died out while trying to terraform it. Such was the finding of several investigative committees. 
The government took the word of the committees at face value since it fit nicely with a way to help ease the continually burgeoning population of both Earth and Luna. And those of us on the committees knew how to keep ourselves hidden, Eric added, smiling and widening his eyes for emphasis. And that would be how, from the start, you could, I began, Eric finished, work our way back into higher places at universities and in government. It, like the terraforming, took time and patience. But we did it. I remember my father taking me fishing on a lake in northern Wisconsin many times when I was a child. His message to me was always, patience is a virtue. Somewhat ironic, considering I truly believe he suffered from ADHD. But what was the pull for the workers to come, I asked. A pull, Eric crooned, a better word you could not have chosen. The pull was an obscure contract for a government building, small but nonetheless requiring skills the settlers did not possess. What settlers, I asked, thinking. I know you know, Eric said. Voice it, the professor and him finding its way to the surface. Your people, I said in realization. But how did you keep the Terran government from becoming too curious? Bribe the right people, and old flight records, land and building permits are suddenly unearthed in public records, right where they should be, Eric commented as an expert chess master explained to his pupil a finishing maneuver. Once people became coming to and settling on Mars, it attracted attention from the upper class. Money poured in, as did more workers to fill the need. Over time, you know how much. A small settlement turned into a colony, as well as the third pillar of the Terran interplanetary government. So, I once more began, thinking back to the article on LNH Bar. I have to ask for my own good. Did the city create LNH? Or did LNH create the city? Ah, your human interest piece, Eric said. Laura and Hank were good friends, loyal to the cause. They were some of the last to finally give up their immortality. They stuck around to try and see things through, helped the new settlers adjust to the Martian climate, and took on personas that allowed them to give folks the advice. People trusted them. After all, the barkeeps of an already established scrappy settlement had to have some worthwhile wisdom to share. They were TDF, I said. Atmo. They were in Anitics. Yes, Eric replied. Hank Jr., the current owner, knows. It's a family secret. They never told him specifically about me, though. Somehow even knew, even then I knew that my article on LNH, while it would still be published, would not be as important as it had seemed at the time. Along with such a feeling was the knowledge that this new piece of the puzzle that explained so much of the stories I had heard from the regulars and longtime patrons of LNH, could not be used for the article. Only here, in context, could it make enough sense to be included. Tucked away from that conversation with Eric, I kept highlighted the revelation about LNH's past, as well as my very odd experience with the man yet seated before me, an experience once again that opened my mind to the possibilities forthcoming in the days ahead. And that was chapter 8, How the Nanites Work. It's a little bit 
of an insight into how I envision these things working. We will see more, of course, in future chapters, but that's at least a little bit of an introduction. Once again, I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, if you did, if you didn't, if you have any sort of positive or negative, negative critique, please find me on Facebook, head on over to my webpage, find me on Twitter, give me some feedback. I would love to hear it. You know, anything. I would just like to know that you're listening to this podcast. That's why I'm doing this, is for it to be consumed and enjoyed. So, please head on over to my website, www.narclaninc.com. That's www.narclaninc.com. You'll find there all of my contact information as well as my current projects. Right now, Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars, my first book is pretty much done. I might add a new chapter to the beginning. The second book, the sequel to this one, is written. I'm in the process of editing that. A third book of mine, which has yet to really get a firm title, kind of diverges from this storyline, but still lives in the same universe. That one, I have a rough copy of, and I still need to type it up and edit it, but that's done in the first stages. And a fourth book, sequel to that one, I am starting. So, lots of projects out there. That website will always have the most up-to-date information that I can provide. Again, I maintain the website myself right now, so it might take me a little while, but I will get updates out there. My Patreon account will be linked off of the website. Please, if you're enjoying these podcasts, you know, the best thing you can do is share it with somebody. Tell them how much you're enjoying it force them to listen to it, you know? Help me spread this story. I want more people to listen to it. If you're really, really enjoying it, head on over to Patreon. Head on over to my page there and support this podcast. Help me continue to make these. But in any event, again, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for coming back time and again and listening to this podcast. This is Chris Reed's book, I will see you next time.